You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. How are you? My name is uh, Devontae McLean. I'm a member here at Redeemer Odessa. <clears throat> Today we're going to be reading from Jonah. I keep wanting to say first and je- second Jonah, and I don't know why. That's not a thing. Is um, more specifically, uh, Jonah chapter one, verse seventeen, and I'll be reading through the end of the ch- of uh, chapter two. If you have the church Bible, it's page seven hundred seventy-four. If you don't have one, raise your hand, and a person I do not know will bring you one. But Tanner has chosen this person. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's important. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Dev. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. Uh, On the back there are some Connect cards. If you'd take a minute, fill that out, uh, drop one into the giving box, or we have QR codes kind of scattered around. You can fill that out, and uh, we would love an opportunity to connect with you. Uh, to serve you, to see how we can plug you into the life of the body. Uh, And as Dev said, we are in the ESV. If you're on your phone or your tablet, or if you'd like a paper Bible, you can raise your hand and and Daniel will bring you one. Um, Daniel's back there on the right. So, hey, I'm really excited about this passage today. We've been in Jonah for the last couple weeks. But before we hop into today's passage, let's review just a little bit. So we have this prophet, Jonah, and he has received a calling from God to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and call out against it. Jonah, instead of being obedient to God and his word, he decided that he'd rather sell to this faraway place known as Tarshish. But more than that, he's not just running away from a calling of God on his life to preach. He is running away from God himself. He is actively rebelling against God, and we know it's rebellion because God has given him a command, and Jonah does the exact opposite. He gets on a ship at Joppa on the western seaboard a few hundred miles 
of Israel in the opposite direction of Tarshish, which is east of Israel a few hundred miles. And he goes to Joppa, which is what is probably today the country of Spain, and they take off for Tarshish. And the text says that the Lord hurls a storm that threatens the ship and threatens the lives of everybody on the ship. So I watched this TV show. This is not an endorsement, by the way, but I watched this TV show. It's called Seinfeld. And there's an episode where George pretends that he is a marine biologist in order to impress a woman. He ends up having to save this beached well in order for this ruse to continue. The well has a golf ball lodged in its blowhole because Kramer was hitting golf balls into the ocean. So George saves the well, but when George is telling, this is one of my favorite lines in all of the show, when George tells the story to his friends, he looks at his friends and he says, the sea was angry that day, my friends. It was like an old man trying to send back soup at a deli. So we have this struggling ship in this fierce storm and this angry sea, and these seasoned sailors begin throwing stuff overboard to try to lighten the load. They are each praying to their God in order that they may perhaps be saved. And God's man, the prophet, is down in the lower decks and he's asleep. He's so ambivalent to the plight of the others on this ship. The captain of the ship wakes Jonah up and asking him, uh, screaming at him, like, why, how can you sleep at a time like this? Call out to your God and maybe he will do something. So then they cast lots to try to determine whose fault this is, and the lot fell to Jonah. Jonah, who it would appear did not in fact call out to his God, he says, throw me overboard, throw me into the sea, and you will be saved. The sailors tried to resist, but at last it became clear that there was no other way for them to be saved. So the sailors picked him up and threw him overboard, and the sea became instantly calm. It looks like Jonah would rather die than to be obedient to God. He'd rather die than face the feared Ninevites. That's one possibility. He doesn't want to face Israel's enemy, perhaps. It's also possible that he'd rather die than deal with the shame of what he's done up to this point by rebelling against God. Those are two options of why uh, Jonah seems like he'd rather die. And while I think those are... Good possibilities. It's also hard to know what's going on in someone's head three millennia ago. Here's my personal belief. Based on how the book ends, Jonah knows that God is a God who saves. And he'd rather die than the Ninevites have an opportunity to respond in faith. However, all of this is purely speculation. So at this point in the text, we have Jonah in the sea. And so that's where we're going to pick up the narrative today. And so as we read this text, there are two themes that we're going to continue to unpack together. God's sovereignty over creation and God's sovereignty over salvation. We have a God. These godly attributes can be ascribed to him. Omniscience, God being all-knowing, and omnipotence, God being all-powerful. So we're going to see God's divine foreknowledge and God's 
divine power over outcomes and creation. And so as we continue to walk through Jonah, I'd ask that you just continue to take a humble posture before the text. I'd ask you to consider your life and honestly assess if you are walking in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And also just consider God's response to sin and sinners this morning. So let's pray together and we're going to jump in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, I pray that we would not take lightly our sin, Lord, because you don't take sin lightly. Lord, I pray that you would call us to faith and belief and repentance by your great love and your great mercy to us this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed and that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so here again we see this fish. It's important for you to know that the story of Jonah is far more than just this verse. This is what we think of when we think of the story of Jonah. Jonah and the well, right? But the fish occupies only two verses in the entire book. It's mostly a secondary character. So let's elevate our story of the book of Jonah, our understanding of the book of Jonah together. So just like the Lord appoints a storm, the text tells us that the Lord appointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah. Here we see again God's ability to control nature as his creation according to his good and pleasing will. So Jonah, the prophet, has been thrown into the sea, and he's been swallowed up by this fish. Oftentimes when we like see cartoons or movies or read stories about this event, it's the sailors throwing Jonah into the sea, and as soon as Jonah hits the water, the fish comes out of nowhere and gobbles him up. But given the words of Jonah in chapter 2, this does not appear to be the case. Let's look at chapter 2 together. Jonah 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Jonah prays. There is up to this point no indication that Jonah has prayed at all uh, through, through this story. It doesn't appear that when he was urged to pray by the captain that he did so. But here... We see him affirming that it is God who has caused the great calamity on the sea. But Jonah seems to have no desire to engage God. Again, it appears that he'd rather die than speak to God on behalf of the sailors and on behalf of himself. It's clear, though, based on chapter 2, that Jonah is having a heart change. He prays from the belly of the fish. R.T. Kendall says that, The belly of a fish is not a great place to live, but it is a great place to learn. 
Jonah is learning that God's reach is beyond the borders of Israel and that his power is immense. It's also important to note here that while Jonah is having this heart change, God is the one that pursued Jonah. God in his foreknowledge, God in his omniscience, his all-knowing power, knew the response that Jonah was going to give. When God told him to go to Tarshish, God knew that Jonah would rebel. And yet, God pursued him in loving patience and in loving care. So Jonah prays. And this prayer is both laced with thanksgiving and like a retrospective thought. Essentially, this is a summary prayer of Jonah's near-death experience. Let's look at this together. Uh, Jonah 2, uh, verse 2. I'm going to start in verse 1 again. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is in the sea, and he's starting to think, hey, maybe death by drowning isn't really what I'm wanting. Jonah is in dire need. He's headed towards death, and he recognizes that he is about to die, separated from God and separated from God's goodness. Jonah remembers the faithful covenant-keeping God, and he appeals to him on the basis of that relationship. He's appealing to God on the basis of knowing a God who is gracious and merciful. He's appealing to not the little g-gods of the pagan sailors, but he's appealing, appealing to the Lord, Yahweh, the only one true God, this God who is mighty to save and save to the uttermost. Jonah's crying out to this God, the God of the Bible. He says, God, I'm headed towards Sheol. Rather, uh, he's saying that he's already resigned himself to Sheol prior to praying to God. So Sheol in the Old Testament is a place of torture where the unrighteous await their final judgment. It's essentially um, for lack of time to have a full-on discussion. Think of it like in New Testament terms. It's the, Jonah's headed to hell in his mind. And it's not the death that he's afraid of. Based on the prayer of Jonah, what he seems to be most fearful of is separation from God and his goodness for all eternity. Jonah is in active rebellion against God by trying to flee the presence of God. And listen, that's the reality for all of us. That's the reality for those that willfully rebel, who know the grace of God and reject it. God is merciful to save sinners, but when we reject the free gift of grace and mercy, we will spend eternity separated from him for all eternity. And that's what makes hell so awful. It's not just the physical anguish, as bad as that is. It's the spiritual darkness. It's the spiritual darkness that makes hell so awful. Because God's presence is not there. And there is no hope for rescue. And we're seeing this in Jonah's prayer. 
Jonah is recognizing how far his sin has taken him away from God. That's the danger about sin. That's... Sorry, are we good? Okay, sorry. That's the danger uh, about sin. Your guitar will fall over. Just kidding. Sin will always take you further and further and further away from God than you ever thought possible. Sin always promises fulfillment, and it never satisfies you. Jonah's in the water. Jonah's headed towards death. And it's interesting to me that he is recognizing God's sovereign rule and reign over his life in this moment. God, it was you that hurled the storm at me. God, it was you that threw me into the sea. God, these are your waves. These are your billows that are drowning me. God, you are the one that is doing this to me. But he's not blaming God. He's acknowledging God's power. So what we're getting here is a picture of God's just wrath against sin and rebellion. Eric Redmond says that we see a God who is actually pursuing Jonah with his wrath. The prophet is in this near-death encounter because he has rebelled against God. And God is now doing this because God's plans will not be hindered by man. And this is one of those instances where those that want to argue the the two natures of God, you know, like the angry God of the Old Testament and sweet, kind, benevolent, hippie like Jesus in the New Testament are in view here. It's sometimes hard to reconcile that we have a kind, loving, merciful God who can have so much fury. But if you'll hang with this text just a little longer, I hope you will see that God's wrath against sin that leads to loving discipline of those he loves is actually a mercy. Because God is good. So Jonah continues to pray. Verse 4, he says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Verse 4, Jonah acknowledges that his sin has consequences. And those consequences are are more than just a hard life. Sin always leads to death. And sin always leads to destruction. He has been driven away from the sight of the Lord, he says, and yet he is receiving mercy because he is able to repent of his sinful rebellion. It is God's kindness that Jonah is in the situation that he's in. Repentance is the will of the Lord for his people. Jonah recognizes his situation is serious. And yet he knows God is a God who keeps his promises. So he knows that upon prayerful repentance, God will hear him and restore him. Like imagine if you just had an easy life and never experienced anything hard and difficult and missed God in the process. It's God's kindness that Jonah is where he's at because Jonah is drawing near to God as God is drawing near to Jonah in this moment. 
The water is closing in over Jonah. The Hebrew word literally saying like, the water's up in my throat, God. Jonah is trapped in the seaweed. He's sinking so deep that he says he's at the base of the mountains. That according to early Jewish understanding, mountains extend from the depths of the ocean. So he is way down there. Essentially, Jonah's saying, God, I am sinking to the bottom of the sea, and I deserve it. Some would maybe interpret this metaphorically or allegorically, like this is just a picture of Jonah's spiritual condition. And while that's possible, the primary interpretation is that Jonah is in physical danger of drowning. Because he's acknowledged like he ran from God and his sins have consequences. In the preceding verses, he has acknowledged that he's also in grave spiritual danger. He is headed towards Sheol and he says the bars are closing in on him. When a wicked person died in the Old Testament and went to Sheol, there was this understanding that bars literally closed in over the top of the deceased like a prison cell. And they were stuck there forever because they could not open the bars on their own. And Jonah says, yet, or, but God brought me back from the grave. You made dead things come alive, God. Listen, none of us, to my knowledge, have had any of this experience, like, None of you have been thrown overboard a ship while running from God. We don't have water here anyways. I fell in Buffalo Wallow. Um, But many of us in here, we do know the kindness of the Lord to call us out of sin and into life. The Lord delivers his people from the grip of death. And we are all like Jonah. We're all like Jonah in desperate situations without hope apart from Christ. Drowning in our sin, drowning in our hopeless sinful condition, drowning in the consequences of our sin, and God made a way for us to be reconciled back to him through the death of himself on the cross. He came to our rescue, even though we had actively, willfully, and consistently rebelled against him and is calling on our life for obedience and worship. And Jesus willfully died in our place. Look at what Jonah says in verse 7. When my life was wasting, I'm sorry, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah says he remembered the Lord. This is a statement saying that I have been blinded by my sin, blinded by my rebellion, and God in his kindness drew near to Jonah in the midst of these deserved consequences for his sin. Jonah prays to God. He says, God, you are in your holy temple. This is not a physical temple like the one that Solomon built in 1 Kings 8, but this is a metaphorical, a spiritual temple. God is on his throne, and he hears Jonah from the bottom of the sea because God's presence is everywhere, even when we have wandered far away from him, and God is pleased to answer the prayers of his people. Jonah is saying, God, even from here, even from the bottom of the ocean, you know me, you see me, and you can save me. So consider this. 
is it possible, is it possible to be so rebellious, so far away from God that he cannot save you? Is it possible? That's the right answer. Thank you. But maybe you're sitting out there listening to all this and thinking, yeah, Jonah ran from God, but you don't know what I've done. Jonah ran from God, but you don't know what I've done. I am too sinful for God to save. I am too unworthy for God to save. I have done so much. God could not love me. And one thing we learned from Jonah's story is that that is just not true. God hears those who call on his name for salvation and is pleased to act in love. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God hears those who place their faith in Christ to save. We have all fallen short We've all fallen short of the standard of perfection that God has set for us. The standard he has set for us is to be holy, to be perfect, and we have all failed. And God looks on us in love, and he sent a way for us to be reconciled, and he sent a way for us to be redeemed. All of us deserve death, and God is pleased to save us. Jonah 2, 8 through 9 Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's prayer now is shifting from this save me now, God, to this is who you are, God. This is um, our response to you, God. It seems, verse 8 seems to be more prophetic in nature Um, then save me, I'm drowning in nature. (laughs) Jonah, through his prayers, moved from pleading with God for deliverance because he's so confident that God is going to deliver. He's now reminding himself and future readers of this book about consequences for sin. He says, those who hope in vain idols, the idols of self or anything else, forsake the love of God to them. He says, idols cannot save. And man, that's kind of an interesting thing thought for me, uh, just the placement of this in the story, that seems like an odd thing for Jonah to say, right? I've been gobbled up by the sea beast. I'm in the innards of this sea creature, and I'm thinking about idols. But if you consider the history of the nation of Israel, from the beginning of time until the time that Jonah's hanging out in this fish, the nation's biggest sin struggles are idolatry. They're always turning away from the God of Israel and sacrificing to idols. And Jonah is saying, look at me. Look at where I'm at. I'm in a place where our carved images of wood can do nothing to save me. These counterfeit gods that we create have no power here. Only God. Only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Only he is the one that can save. And only he is the one that can do anything about this situation. Idols can't do anything for us. So for our purposes, perhaps you don't have idols of wood or silver or gold. 
I mean, I've been to several of your homes, and I haven't seen any statues that you're sacrificing to, thankfully, so that's good. But the New Testament, though, it's clear that greed and covetousness are idolatry. We're still people that chase idols. We spend time chasing money and careers and status and sex, alcohol, substances, trying to raise perfect kids, trying to get our kids in the perfect schools. We try to fill our lives up with things that never satisfy us in order to make ourselves feel some sort of way about ourselves. Tim Keller says that an idol is whatever we look at and say in our heart of hearts. If I have this, if I have it, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. And I'll know that I have value. And I'll feel significant. And I'll feel secure. But those things are things only that God can provide for us. If we pursue things, if we pursue stuff, if we pursue status or whatever else, we are forsaking the faithful love of God to us. The word for steadfast love in the Hebrew is this word. It's pronounced hesed. In the New Testament, the equivalent is the word agape. And that just means God's covenant love to us which is exhibited in his faithful grace and mercy in which God in love gives us through Christ apart from or in spite of any action that we do. God loves us in spite of us. Sinner, Christian, God loves us simply because he loves us. And so the calling of our lives then is to repent of our unbelief and receive this great love, the merciful love of God. Jonah says, I'm going to follow the Lord. And that's the same calling that God has placed on our life. There is hope for us in Christ. There is no hope or mercy in idolatry. So turn from your idols Turn from the idol of self and follow the Lord because Jonah says, in accordance with the whole scripture, that salvation is from the Lord. So more on that in a second. Let's just finish this text together. Uh, Jonah 2.10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Here's the second and last time we see this fish. So again, Jonah's more than this, this part of the story. The Lord speaks to the fish, and the fish obeys and swallows Jonah up. The Lord speaks to the fish after three days, and the fish obeys, and Jonah is spat out, vomited upon the dry land. Jonah has been spared from death. God's sovereign control over Jonah's life is in view here, and the same is true for us. So I don't want to miss the significance of what's happening here in this moment. Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. And then he's raised up three days later. So if you like theological words, here's here's one of my favorites. This is what's known as a typology. Come on. Thank you. Okay. I set you up, bro. You did. Anyways, 
This is typology. A typology is a literary, hermeneutical, that word means biblical interpretation, so it's like a literary device in which a person or event or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. So just for clarity's sake, there are things in the Old Testament that occur that point forward to people or events in the New Testament. The Old Testament has these events. They are typological events that exist as a shadow or a picture of things to come in the New Testament. So when you're studying the Bible in general, and the Old Testament specifically, don't look at the Bible as a collection of writings or disjointed stories, but as one big story of a God who rescues and redeems a people unto himself. The whole Bible is a story about Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, who comes to earth in accordance with the eternal decree given at the beginning of time that says that God would rescue a people and he will be their God. And they will be his. God saves for his glory and his glory alone. God saves for our good and for, for his glory. And so the Old Testament is full of these typologies. So just for example, let's take a look briefly at the story of Moses. Here's some highlights. Moses, as a baby, leaves Israel with his mom, sends him down a river in a basket. He leaves Israel because there is an edict from the king that all infant males need to be killed. And so Moses then ends up in Egypt, and so does Christ when he's a baby. Moses wanders in the desert for 40 years, corresponding with Jesus' temptation in the same desert for 40 days. Jesus was tempted with food and water and glory and power just the same way Moses was. And Jesus overcame the temptations that Moses could not. Moses served as a mediator between God and his people. And Christ does this too, specifically by his blood. At Moses' death, the people could enter the promised land. At Jesus' death, people can enter the promised kingdom of God, free from sin and free from death. Jesus is the better Moses. And there are several instances of these in, in the Old Testament. Here's another one in Jonah, another typology in Jonah that is so important that you should not miss this. Jonah was thrown into the sea for pagan sailors. Jonah was sacrificed for Gentiles, just like Christ would be. Jonah was in the belly of the fish, a watery grave, if you will, for three days, presumed dead and then raised to life. Christ was in the grave, slain for the sins of his bride, the church, and sin and death could not contain him. He rose from the grave, rising from death to life by the power of God three days later. Jesus is the better Jonah. Matt Bertrand shared this with me from an Exodus study. He's walking through with, with Chad Adams. Water in the scriptures is generally associated with judgment. We see being, Jonah being judged in the water. 
We see him being immersed in it and then brought to new life, just like Christ would be one day. Except Christ did nothing wrong, but took our judgment upon himself. Jonah was rescued from his judgment and was declared righteous because of his faith in God. Jesus, on the other hand, took our guilt on himself. And now we're righteous too because of the faith given to us by God to receive the forgiveness that Christ provides from our sins. When we're baptized, we are identifying with the judgment upon Jesus in our place. Jonah is under God's wrath because he is a rebellious sinner and because he deserved it, as we all do. Jesus on the cross was under God's wrath, not because he deserved it, but because he loves his bride. Jesus loves his church, and he saves his church from spiritual death and spiritual separation. Jonah was sent to the depths of Sheol because God put him there. Jesus went to the depths of hell, not not literally, but spiritually, as he experienced the Father turning his face away from him as he hangs on the cross because he submitted to the will of his Father. Jonah experienced God's wrath as a rebel. Jesus experienced God's wrath that was ours. And because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we will never have to experience God's wrath to us. God's mercy is so great that he was willing to die in our place. Church, this ought to lead us to worship and delight. We have been saved. We have been pardoned. We have been forgiven. Does that move you to delight in Jesus? Jesus, our better Jonah, has been raised from death to life so we can know him, so we can love him, and so we can experience him. Don't flee from the calling of God on your life. Repent. Receive his forgiveness and love. He delights in redeeming us, and he delights in saving us. So if you are walking in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, and you are a believer in Christ, God will relentlessly pursue those whom he loves and bring you back by whatever means necessary. Jonah was guilty when he cried out to God. And God saved him. Jonah was guilty. And God heard him and rescued him and redeemed him. That could be your story too. Perhaps you're walking in sin and your life is crumbling all around you. This is not God being ambivalent towards you. But God desiring to bring you back to him. What we see in Jonah and throughout the Old Testament is that God is not distant. Even at our lowest. Even while in the midst of sin and shame, God's spirit is available to those who repent and believe. Church, God is near. Receive this great mercy. Christ does not shame us, but Christ calls us forward. He calls us to himself. 
So are you resting in God's sovereign rule and reign and care for your life in this season? When life is hard and things seem to be out of control, are you, like Jonah, remembering God and crying out for help from him? Or are you just trusting in yourself to get through it? Are you trusting God with your life moment by moment by moment? If not, Christ is offering you his rest. To trust and obey and submit and delight in him. And maybe you don't know this love, but it is available to you through faith and repentance. So church, place your hope and faith in Christ this morning and receive this great mercy. Let's pray.